This morning we're going to be talking about the idea of peace. And throughout the New Testament, and even throughout the Old Testament, there seems to be some some conflict, some contradiction in this idea of, of peace. Because we read the proclamation of the angels where the scripture says, uh, the angels made the proclamation, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For today in the city of David is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it will be, and he will bring about goodwill and peace to all men. And then we read in Matthew chapter 10, where the scripture tells us that Jesus himself made the statement in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus himself made the statement that I did not come to bring peace. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the member of his household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life shall find it. He who receives you receives me. Who receives me receives him who sent me. So we see these statements from Christ. Do not think that I came to bring peace. And yet we see the proclamation of the angels that the one who is coming is coming to bring peace. And, and there seems to be some rub, there seems to be some conflict in the context of the Scripture itself. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14 through 22. And I, I, I want to, let me go ahead and preface this morning, I'm not going to solve the conflict of, of peace and not peace. Uh, I'm, I'm not that smart. If I was, I would write a book. Uh, and, and I'd be a millionaire. Uh, but, but we are going to examine what the text says. And we're going to see how Christ can be both the source of conflict and yet the source of eternal peace. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14, verses 14 through 22 this morning. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says this, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which the law of the commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one. The new man thus establishing peace. And it might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you. And you were far away. And peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have, a- have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having then been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together, growing into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built into a dwelling 
of God and the Spirit. Let's pray. God, may we know peace. May we know peace by knowing the Prince of Peace. Lord, may we see in Christ the fulfillment of the law and the righteousness and the reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you come in contact with someone who is of the Jewish faith, chances are they will either greet you or they will, de- or, or, or your departure, they will say shalom or peace be with you. Because that, that was a, that has been and, and continue and will continue to be a typical greeting or a typical departure uh, for the people of the Jewish faith, for the people of Israel. Uh, they proclaim and they are, they are wishing and they are asking that God will grant you peace. Shalom literally means peace be with you. May God grant you peace. Uh, in, in fact, if you go to the Roman Catholic Church during a uh, during their time of welcome, they will say uh, they will stand up and uh, at the appropriate time in the service, at the appropriate time in the liturgy, uh, the the priest will ask the uh, congregations to greet one another. And as they greet one another, uh, for those of us who have been to a Roman Catholic service, what do they say? Peace be with you. Where do you think they get that from? They didn't make it up on their own. They stole it from the Jews. It is simply an English translation of the, of the term shalom. May peace be with you. May God grant you peace. And in the Old Testament, the idea of peace is that peace is a gift that God has given and that God has bestowed because left unto ourselves, we are not a peaceful people. Look around. Growing up, growing up, I knew this all too well from firsthand experience. I have a brother who's only a couple years younger than me, and he and I got along wonderfully. We never had a cross word. We never argued. We never disagreed about anything. And, and we certainly never fought, ever. Well, uh, you know that I'm lying. Uh, there, was a t- there was a time I remember, uh, uh, I remember, and, and for... Uh, for my brother, I can say uh, that uh, that he had a pretty high tolerance for high threshold for pain. Because uh, I would I would you know beat on him mercilessly because I was older and and I could right. But 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 we are not a people of peace. I remember one time uh, my, my my brother was you know he was taking a shower or something and he took off his shirt and my dad saw all the bruises all over him. He said, what in the world happened to you? And my brother was, he was caught between a rock and a hard place because he knew, okay, if I, if I tell my dad what happened, then my brother's going to get in trouble and then I'm going to, I'm going to catch another beating for telling, for, for, for ratting out my brother and telling on him. But if I don't tell my dad, then I'm going to get in trouble and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm at a loss. Well, I say all this to say we are not a people of peace. If you go back and you look at the uh, you look at the scripture, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, the very first offspring of the very first people. And what happened? Cain slew Abel. They didn't get along. Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac didn't get along. 
We see this all throughout text, all throughout the text of Scripture, all throughout redemptive history. We as people are not peaceful people. How many of you have ever had a conflict or ever had a fight with someone in your life? All of us, because we're not peaceful people, because we want what we want. And we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, where we want it. We want what we want, and we don't care what the other person wants. And in fact, it's only after redemption, it's only after the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, that we are even able to acknowledge our selfishness and our sinfulness, and repent and and strive to live with peace. That's only after redemption. That's only after the Holy Spirit has empowered us and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. Shalom, the Old Testament, the Israelites understood that the only way for there to be peace was the gift of God. Because left unto ourselves, we are not a peaceful people. And so so when they would meet you, when they would greet you, they would ask for, when they said shalom, it was the idea saying, God, please, by your grace and by your mercy, give us the gift of peace. Because we are not a peaceful people. Peace has always been seen as a result of obedience. Remember the covenant with Abraham. God said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. The idea is that on the other side of obedience, on the other side of doing what's right, you will receive the blessing of peace. Well, Israel spent the better part of its its history living in disobedience to God's law. They spent the better part of of their history, and you can go and you can look back through the text of the Old Testament, and you can see that God told them time and time again, do not serve the false gods. Do not serve the gods of, of, of your neighbors. Do not serve the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the, uh, the Hittites. Do not serve these false gods. Do not give yourself to these foreign gods. And we see all throughout Israel's history that time after time, they did not obey God's law. And when they did not obey God's law, the, the period of the judges is an example. When they did not obey God's law, they became, uh, they became a people where conflict and war and judgment lived and reigned among them. We see throughout the kings, throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, whenever there was an evil king who did not do right in the sight of the Lord, what did God do? He brought their enemies against them and, and God did not give them peace. However, we read times whenever there were godly kings, kings like Hezekiah, kings like Josiah, king godly kings who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, kings like David, kings like Solomon who sought to do right. And in those times... What does the scripture tell us and teach us? That God gave Israel peace amongst his enemies. We see this all throughout history. We see this all throughout Israel. Even in our life, even in our life, we see that when we are obedient to God's law and when we strive to do what is right, that we receive the blessings of peace in our life. That whenever we we give and we serve and we are kind and we are benevolent, that God gives us the blessings of peace amongst our fellow man. Peace is always seen as the result of obedience. But I want us to point out that Israel's persistent disobedience led to the exile. We go back and we look back through the history of Israel, we see that through Israel's direct disobedience and consistent disobedience, God said, fine. If you are going to continue to serve these false gods, then I am going to give you a permanent 
state or a, a, a permanent uh, uh, dissonance from my peace. And God allowed the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians to come in and to place Israel under exile. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel lived in a state of eternal conflict. They lived in a state where they were slaves, where they were, where they were inhabitants in a land that was not their own, that they were being, they were the object of disobedience. They were the object of wrath. And this idea of shalom became something that that the old people talked about, something that the prophets prophesied about, but no one really believed that it was going to happen. No one, it, it, was, it, it became a pipe dream. It became something that, that yeah, the, the old people talk about peace, they talk about uh, a Messiah, they talk about when, when, when God comes and intercedes in the, on behalf of His people, but it, it's never really going to happen. I mean, is it? You know, I believe that, that for the people of Israel, that this idea of shalom during the exilic period and right before the coming of the Messiah, that, that this idea of shalom, the idea of peace, was something that, that no one really believed was going to happen. I mean, after all, any time there was a, a talk of peace or any time there was an idea that, 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 you know, that, that something good may happen, what happened? It never came to fruition. Regardless, God is the giver of peace. Psalm 29, verse 11, I want us to understand that this is not just some idea, but that this is truth that is found in Scripture. That God is the author of peace, and He is the giver of peace. Psalm 29, 11 reads like this. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. There were, in the Old Testament, false prophets who proclaimed peace and promised peace to Israel. And when peace did not come, then they were labeled false prophets. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14 is one example of that. In Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14, we see that Jeremiah is proclaiming judgment and wrath because of the disobedience of Israel. And we see that that Jeremiah writes, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. In the idea that, that the prophet would proclaim peace whenever judgment and wrath were coming, this would make the prophet a false prophet. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 33. In Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 33, another example of, of this false prophet. The, the, the prophet reads, the prophet is again speaking that judgment and wrath is coming. And in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 33, Jeremiah writes, it's not 16, verse 33. Well, let's go ahead and look at Ezekiel then, I'm sorry. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 16. Ezekiel chapter 13, And thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have, those who have plastered it over with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is gone, and its plasters are gone. And verse 16 says, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem, who see visions of peace, when there is no peace, declares the Lord. 
Ezekiel says that there are those who prophesy about peace and those who prophesy that that there will be harmony in the midst of exile, in the midst of judgment, that they are false prophets. In the New Testament, when Christ came, there were many of those who believed that these proclamations of peace were just like the false prophets. They were just like Jeremiah warned, and just like Ezekiel warned, and just like Isaiah warned. That there are those who are proclaiming peace, but there's no peace. We've been in exile for 400 years. We've been suffering the judgment and the wrath of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why would this be any different? Why would this be different than than, than what took place in the Maccabean Revolt. Why would this be different than what took place under Nebuchadnezzar? Why would this be any different? I want to point out to you what peace is not. The peace that the Scripture speaks of, the peace that the angels proclaimed, was not a political ideal. It was not the absence of war, It was not some superficial tranquility. John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 27, gives us, through Jesus' own words, what this peace would embody. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be fearful. Now, Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Now, let me ask you this question. Did Jesus enjoy a life of peace? No. All throughout Jesus' life, was was He in a state that was free from conflict? Not if I read the New Testament correctly. Every time time Jesus turned around, He was being accosted, He was being being, uh, uh, addressed and being dressed down by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. He was being, uh, uh, they tried to kill Him multiple times. They tried to kill Him the first time He went to Jerusalem. They tried to kill Him the second time He went to Jerusalem. He drove out the money changers and exposed the corruption in Jerusalem and they tried to kill Him. He told the Pharisees, I am the son of Abraham. He told them that before Abraham was, I am. And they tried to kill him. This was not a man who was free from conflict. The scripture says in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That is not someone who's free from conflict. Jesus said, my peace I give you. And my peace will inhabit you. It says in John chapter 14, He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. He says, this is not some superficial tranquility. This is not the absence of conflict. This is not some political ideal. So what is this peace that Jesus speaks of? Well, if we go back to our original text, I want us to see something. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, our original text. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's telling them, he's speaking to them about the peace of God that comes through Christ. He says, for he himself is our peace. Who made both groups into one, talking about Gentiles and Jews. Verse 16. 
that he might reconcile that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put it to death, the enmity. What is this enmity? The scripture tells us that, that there was a, a division, that there was a barrier, that there was a conflict that was created whenever sin entered the world. And that conflict was between a holy God and a sinful man, that there was enmity, that there was a conflict, that there was a barrier between God and man. And that is the source of all conflict. That is the source of all war. That is the source of all unrest. That is the source of all of the, the, the horrid and the wickedness and the evil that is in this world. Fighting and conflict is inevitable because we live in a sinful world and it is a result of our selfishness. This week, uh, the kids have been off of school and we have played games and we've watched movies. And every time we play a game, we've got three kids. I've got a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old, 8-year-old, 8-year-old, 8. And every time we play a game, this is how it starts. I get to go first. And then, no, you went first last time. Well, it's my turn to go first. Well, I'm the youngest. I should get to go first. No, you're, I'm the oldest. I should get to go first. And, and, and everybody wants to go first. And, and, and then once, once they go first, well, well, well then they're, you know, well, you're, you, you're cheating. You're not playing right. Has anybody ever had this experience? Or, or, or you, you walk onto an elevator with all your children and, and what happens? Every one of them wants to press the button. And, and, you, you, it, it's, it's, we're, we're going one floor. There's one button to press. It doesn't matter who presses the button, but they want to press the button because they want what they want, right? Why? Because they're selfish. Because sin is their nature. It's who they are. This enmity, this, this barrier between God and man is a result of sin. And I want us to understand that God has given us His righteous law, the righteous requirement of God, that whenever He spoke to, and whenever he spoke to, to Moses, He gave Moses the law, and He said, if you will obey My law, then you will experience what? Peace. If you obey My law, if you don't, if you don't have worship any other gods, if you don't worship any false idols, if you remember the Lord's day and keep it holy, if you don't take the Lord's name in vain, if you don't, if you don't murder, if you don't steal, if you don't bear false witness, if you don't commit adultery, if you don't... He gave us the law. And He said, if you will do these things, then you will experience peace. And so the law is what illustrated, is what, what, what created... It didn't create, but the law, law made us aware of our sin. Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. And so the law brings to our consciousness the idea that we have transgressed God's law and that makes us aware of our state. It makes us aware of our sinfulness and creates this enmity, creates this barrier between God and man. And thus as a result, all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the evil, our selfish desires is being, is being manifest because of the enmity between God and man. Because of our sin, I want us to understand that we have not only offended 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've not only offended our fellow man, but the Scripture tells us that we have offended a holy God. I want you to see how David responded when he was confronted with his sin. As David is confronted with his sin, Bathsheba, David has he has murdered his neighbor's he has murdered his neighbor Uriah. He has committed adultery. He has stolen his neighbor's wife. He has coveted his neighbor's wife. He has, in, in one failed swoop, he has broken all ten of the Ten Commandments. And whenever it is brought to his attention that, that you know what? I know that Nathan has brought this to, to, to his attention. Nathan says, I know that you have sinned. I know that you have, you have murdered Uriah, you have stolen his, his wife, you have slept with her, you have, you have committed adultery, you have committed all of these atrocity, uh, atrocities that whenever Nathan confronts David, listen to David's response. He didn't say, I have transgressed my relationship with Uriah. I have, I have ruined my status as king. Listen to what he says in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. He's speaking to God. He says, against thee and thee alone have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. So you are justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. David understood that his first and primary offense was against a holy God. And we must understand that whenever we sin, and we do often, whether in word, thought, deed, whether in omission, commission. And when we sin, our greatest defense is not against the one whom we've wronged, but against the one whom we've wronged supremely, against God. Conflict and fighting occurs because of the manifestation of our sin. And God doles out His judgment. Either when God gives us over to our selfish desires or whenever God raises up our enemies against us. But the good news of the Gospel is that God loves us too much to leave us in that state. There are times whenever I, as a dad, my children are fighting Whenever we just shut the door and we say, let them figure it out. If they don't figure it out, if they don't learn to figure it out whenever they're, they're 8, 11, and 13, by the time they're 25, 26, 27, they're hopeless. And so we just, there are times where as parents where, where we just shut the door and they're fighting about, you know, who's, whose turn it is to play on this or do that. And we just shut the door and we say, let them figure it out. But then there are times when as parents, Whenever we see the conflict is escalating and it's going to, it's going to, to end badly whenever, you know, it's going to end in a trip to the ER or it's going to, to, to end with, with, with something very bad. Whereas parents, motivated by love, whenever we step in and whenever we say, okay, this is what is right, this is what is wrong, this is what needs to happen. I want us to understand that in a, in a very real sense, in a very real way, That God in His sovereignty and God in His great grace looked at humanity and said that there is enmity between God, a holy God, a righteous God, and a sinful man, and that there is no way that that barrier is ever going to be solved. That there is no way that that enmity is ever going to be fixed. And so I, God, 
God of the creation, the creator of the universe, that I must step in. And God Himself became a man. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of truth and grace. And we beheld His glory, full of truth and grace, glory of the only begotten of the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we see God interceding, God coming down and becoming a man. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read that in Christ we have peace. Because God Himself fulfilled the perfect righteous requirement of the law. And I want to, this is a huge part of achieving peace. Remember, we said that peace is always the result of obedience. Peace is the blessing that God gives as a result of obedience. Christ became completely and perfectly obedient to God the Father. Every, every aspect, every requirement of the law, Christ fulfilled. And then the Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made Him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As Christ hung upon the cross, there was something supernatural that took place. That God took the righteous requirement of the law, the righteous fulfillment of the law that Christ achieved. And our sin and selfishness and pride and animosity and all of the putrid sin that we, that we embodied. And God imputed onto Christ our sin and God imputed onto us the righteous fulfillment of the law. And so, in Christ, and only in Christ, do we receive the peace of God. Peace not from conflict in this world. John chapter 14 says, The peace that I give you is not peace of this world. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, the peace that God gives is not of this realm. It is a supernatural peace. So whenever Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, He is speaking very much in this world. He said, when I come and you begin to proclaim my gospel, the enemy, those who hated me, will hate you also. He says that in John chapter 15. Those who persecuted me will persecute you also. He said, but I did not come to bring peace in this realm. But I came to bring a supernatural peace. Because when you die, you will stand before a holy God. And you will have to answer for the enmity, the enmity, the, the separation, the barrier between His holiness and our sinfulness. And the only solution is Jesus' righteousness. That's it. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we have no peace with God. That's how the angel could proclaim peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Because in Christ, and only in Christ, 
we can have the peace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You that in Christ You fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. That in Christ You gave us peace. Not peace that this world has. Not a a temporary, superficial peace. But a peace that is eternal. A peace that Paul says in Philippians that surpasses all understanding. Or there are those here this morning who do not know that peace. They're striving for it. They're trying to be good. They're trying to do what's right they lay their heads on their pillow at night and they have no peace from God. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. On this Christmas Eve, come and find peace with God. Not through anything you can do, but through everything what Jesus has done. During this time of invitation, as we sing, Maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to seek God's face. Maybe you need to grab someone with you and come and pray. During this time of invitation, may you find the freedom to be obedient. God, may your Holy Spirit move in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.